you please open your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you have a bookmark there and in chapter 12, that'll be the two places, two main places we'll be. <clears throat> you know, today uh, being our uh, New Year's Eve, it gives us uh, an opportunity to do two things. Uh, number one, assess the year that's just gone. And uh, number two, set goals for the years to come. And uh, what I'd like to do this morning is to consider uh, the book of Ecclesiastes, the whole thing, and use it as an assessment for what we have lived for in 2023 and allow it to determine what we should be living for in 2024. Okay, so that, that's the goal. And uh, with that in mind, uh, let's pray and uh, ask for God's help. So let's pray. Father God, as we come uh, to the preached word, uh, we know that preaching is a key part of your plan for our spiritual development. Uh, this is why we do it. And uh, yet it's uh, easy for us uh, to get distracted and uh, not be engaged. And hence, uh, we plead for your enabling grace. May your hand be upon us. Help us to be attentive. And we plead that the Holy Spirit would help us to understand your word. And uh, may it pour into our lives in relevant and applicable ways. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. You know, when I was uh, in Proteins, uh, which was youth group, uh, a very long time ago now, we used to sing a song, I'd Rather Have Jesus. And uh, perhaps you know the song. And the whole song is about wanting Jesus more than anything else. And uh, as a teenager, I always found it very challenging, so I wasn't sure if that was true in my life. And uh, you know, perhaps you know some of the lyrics, I'd rather have Jesus than silver or gold. I'd rather have Jesus than money. Uh, I'd rather have Jesus uh, than riches untold. I'd rather have Jesus than houses or lands. I'd rather have Jesus than men's applause. I'd rather have Jesus than worldwide fame. And the final line of the chorus goes, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Think about that. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. You know, as Christians, we know that ought to be our desire. We know that's the right answer. But is it true for you? Is it true for me? But throughout 2023, has this been your number one desire? To have Jesus more than anything as you set your goals and resolutions for the new year. Is this your number one priority? Do you really live this out? I'd rather have Jesus than anything. You know, would a lawyer find it difficult or simple to prove this claim in your life? Now, as we think about this, it's important to realize that as human beings, we all desire something. Okay, there's no such thing as a desireless human being. Okay, we're all chasing something. We, we all believe something will make us happy. Okay, that there's something that we believe will bring contentment, fulfillment, and satisfaction to us for you what is it i'd rather have blank than anything what's in the blank okay that that's the piece of the puzzle that you believe will complete you i'd rather have a new house than anything that will make me happy i'd rather have a new job or a promotion than anything that will fulfill me I'd rather have $1 million than anything. 
We probably need to increase that amount. A million dollars doesn't get you much in Sydney anymore. You know, I would rather have $10 million than anything. Perhaps that's more appropriate. That would satisfy me. I'd rather a husband or wife than anything. That would complete me. I'd rather children than anything. That would bring me ultimate joy. I'd rather have popularity than anything. That would make me happy. Maybe for the kids, I'd rather be an adult than anything. I'm sick of being a kid. I want to be an adult. Okay. Don't think like that. Being an adult's hard. I'd rather have health than anything. Then I could be happy. I'd rather have fame than anything. That would fulfill me. I'd rather have a problem-free life than anything. That would make me happy. Or I'd rather have good looks and a ripped physique rather than anything. That would bring me satisfaction. Now, the possibilities are almost endless. We all want something more than anything else, and we believe that this thing will bring us happiness and fulfillment. The question is, what is it that we want? What do we desire? What are we striving towards? You know, the old genie in the bottle from Aladdin scenario, okay? If this was true and you had three wishes, if you could have three things this new year, what would it be? Okay, and be honest, uh, don't just think the spiritual answers because we know that's what we're meant to say. Okay, if that's not true, don't say that. What, what do you think would make you happy? If you could have anything in the whole world, what would it be? A paid off mortgage? A bigger or better house? A beach house? A promotion? A relationship? A wedding? A, a loved one back? A child or grandchild? A restored relationship? Good grades? What would you wish for? Because this will reveal what you think will bring you happiness. This will reveal what you think will satisfy you and bring fulfillment into your life. So it's an important question. I'd rather have blank than anything. And what we're going to do in this sermon is to survey the book of Ecclesiastes and determine what we should have been living for in 2023 and what we should strive for in 2024. And it will reveal how we need to answer this question. Okay, I'd rather have blank than anything. If we want to experience true and lasting contentments, if we want to be satisfied, if we want to have purpose and fulfillment and happiness, which is what we all desire, the book of Ecclesiastes will answer this question for us. Now, the book of Ecclesiastes is about a pursuit for contentment, satisfaction, and purpose it's a quest to discover what will make one happy okay this is the big idea of the book everyone wants to be happy everyone here this morning wants to be happy everyone wants their life to have meaning we want to be content we want purpose and this book is all about quenching this universal intrinsic desire it's a search for the key that unlocks the door to what we all desire. And this book is actually a memoir, or it's an autobiographical account, and it reveals a real-life pursuit of an attempt to live life without God. Okay, It's an attempt to live life without God. And this is the key to understanding the book of Ecclesiastes. And this is why the close of the book is so vital. It's like the rudder that steers the ship, and we will get to it. 
But without the end, we would, be, we would completely misunderstand this memoir. We would be left in despair. Everything would be completely pointless. Okay, well, what's the point of life? What's the point of living? So this is a vital interpretive point. In Ecclesiastes, it's trying to live a life without God. And hence, I want to give you the punchline of the book right now, rather than waiting to the end. Okay, so this is my punchline for Ecclesiastes. Life without Jesus is empty, but life with Jesus is awesome. Okay, life without Jesus is empty, but life with Jesus is awesome. Or if you would prefer something more eloquent and intelligent, uh, some men much smarter than me have described the punchline like this, and these are in your notes. These are the two best I found. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life, which will enjoy God's gifts. And number two, whatever you try to build your life on other than Jesus is ultimately utterly meaningless. Okay, so that's the big idea of this book. So we need to remember in Ecclesiastes, this is a pursuit of life without God. And this is encapsulated primarily at the close of the book. Okay, we... I read it before. Okay, fear God, keep his commandments. Okay, that, that's how it finishes. So that, that gives us a clue. But it's also repeatedly, re repeated a little more subtly throughout the book. If you know anything about Ecclesiastes, there are some reoccurring phrases. And one of those phrases is under the sun. And it first occurs in verse 3 of chapter 1. And what this tells us is that this pursuit is entirely earthly. That this pursuit doesn't include God in the picture. It, it doesn't look beyond the earth to God in heaven. That was not part of the pursuit. So it was looking for everything outside of God. And we need to understand that this is what happened right at the beginning of time. Okay, this is what unfolded in the Garden of Eden. Okay, when God created the Garden of Eden, life was perfect. Life had meaning, it had fulfillment, it had complete happiness. They were living life with God. And yet when Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation, okay, this was when living life apart from God begun. That's what mankind shows. Okay, I want to do life my way. I want to live without God, not do what God says. And, and as a result, the fall occurred. And that riddled life with futility, toil, and monotony. So we can think of Ecclesiastes as a memoir of life lived in a post-Genesis 3 world. A fallen, cursed world. And it records the outcomes of a life lived without gods. And this is what was ultimately chosen in the Garden of Eden. So it's important for us to have this framed in the overall story of the Bible. And when hence Ecclesiastes asks and answers this question, can real and lasting meaning, happiness, fulfillment, and contentment be found without God? Can these things be found without God? This is the experiment conducted, reported in the book of Ecclesiastes. And what we're going to do, we're going to skim over the results of this most crucial experiment. 
And may God help us to believe the outcome of this experiment. So the scientists conducting this experiment, or more correctly, according to verse 1, the preacher is none other than King Solomon. You know, although he's not named the son of David, king in Jerusalem, that certainly describes Solomon. And the pursuits within this book harmonize perfectly with what we know about him. So this book could be someone writing an inspired memoir about his life. Or it's inspired writing from the pen of Solomon. And that is the historical view amongst conservative scholars. Now, why does this matter? Well, it's really important because Solomon is someone who had access to absolutely everything that we would typically pursue in life to find meaning. It would be a somewhat flawed experiment if the best things that this world had to offer were not included in the experiments. Okay, imagine if this was some poor homeless man conducting the experiment. You would say, well, you don't have a house. You don't have a money. Of course you're not happy. We could say that about Solomon. If he wasn't rich, we could say, well, hey, that's a flawed experiment. Because if you tried money, guess what? You would have found what you were searching for. So it's important for us to grasp who is conducting this experiment. Because it removes the possibility of saying, okay, but you didn't try this, or you didn't try that. Okay, it would always seem incomplete. But with Solomon, Solomon was the king. And he was the king of a very powerful, wealthy, prosperous, and successful nation. Understand, with Solomon, he has more power, money, fame, and opportunities than you and I will ever have. He's not just some random guy off the street. He's the richest guy in the world, the most powerful guy in the world, the smartest guy in the world. He has it all. He, he's beyond you and I in every single way. His education, his money, his power, his prestige, his fame. Solomon could have anything he wanted. Nothing would be withheld from him. Okay, there was nothing he couldn't try to see if that was the missing piece of the meaning of life puzzle so there's nobody better qualified to conduct this experiment and what he does in reporting his experiments he gives us the results up front he tells us straight away what he discovered and then he unpacks his varying experiments throughout the book and then just in case we forgot the results he comes back to them again at the end of the book so if you look at chapter 1 and verse 2 and chapter 12 and verse 8, they are very similar and they form bookends for Ecclesiastes. So with that in mind, the question is, what were the results of his pursuit of life without God? Solomon left no stone unturned. He tried everything. And this was his findings. Verse 2, vanity of vanities. All is vanity. That's quite clear and uh, it's quite depressing. His experiments, it delivered undebatable results. It was all vanity. You know, there are a number of notable Hebrew superlatives. When we talk about that, it's the repetition of terms, okay, vanity of vanities. 
There are some notable examples throughout the Old Testament. Think of the Song of Songs. What does that mean? Well, it means it's the best of all songs. God of gods. Okay, so God is the greatest or more accurately the only God. The holy of holies. That's the most holy place on earth. So here Solomon is declaring that living life without God is the highest or, or the greatest possible vanity. Okay, that there is nothing more vain than this. It, it's completely and utterly futile. Okay, he couldn't communicate it in any stronger terms. Now this word vanity, it's a little bit tricky to define because it's such a multi dimensional term it means different things in different contexts and it's hard to encapsulate the totality of its meaning now it literally means breath or vapor but it's used in varying ways throughout the old testament and there are three main ways that it's used okay there is vanity in relation to time so it speaks of the fleeting nature of life okay nothing lasts forever it can disappear in a moment okay it's like a bubble you see the bubble you try and catch it and it pops so that's one use it's also used vanity in relation to value so it speaks of things that are worthless and unprofitable and the idea is we can have some things and we think they are so valuable that they're so precious they are so wonderful but eventually we realize they aren't that they're actually worthless and then there is vanity in relation to idols. Okay, Jeremiah uses this term. So idols are these worthless and meaningless things that keep us from God. And I believe all three of these elements of the term vanity are a part of the meaning conveyed by Solomon. Now one writer offers this helpful explanation, and I put this in your outline sheet for you. He said, we can sum vanity up in the following way. Some things may be of value to us, but they are vanity because we will not always have them. At any time, without warning, they can be taken from us. Some things appear to have great value when we first pursue them, but having got hold of them, we realize that they are worthless and we regret the time that we wasted on them. Some things have become like idols. We value them above all else. They remain with us all our days, but we have to leave them behind only to discover too late that they have kept us from God. Okay, so all of this is bound up in this term vanity. And Solomon says vanity of vanities. All is vanity. This is an absolute term. Nothing exceeds the vanity that he discovered in this experiment. There is nothing as futile. There is nothing as meaningless as living life without God. That was the outcome of his experiments. Now what Solomon then does for most of the book is outlines his varying attempts to find meaning, satisfaction and happiness without God. So he explains the experiment that he conducted. And what's particularly interesting is that the things that he pursued are the same kind of things that we pursue today. As Solomon says, there's nothing new under the sun. 
Solomon tried wisdom, education, knowledge. How often is education presented as the solution to the problems of the world? Solomon pursued money, big houses, parties, food, wine, women. He tried moral living. He tried foolish living. He tried religious activities. He pursued work. He had fame. He had popularity. He had power. He pursued every pleasure imaginable. Nothing was withheld from him. Okay, everything that mankind pursues today, Solomon experienced it. Solomon had money beyond comprehension. He had more women and sexual experiences than imaginable. He was the most powerful man alive. He was the wisest man who ever lived. He had massive palace, the best food, the best wine. He had cooks, he had cleaners, he had gardeners, everything imaginable. He didn't have to do anything he didn't want to. He had freedom. He had autonomy. He, he had everything one could possibly dream of and more. Yeah, and this is all documented throughout the book of Ecclesiastes. And after Solomon explains the particulars of his experiment, okay, that this is everything that I've tried, that there is nothing left, where does he conclude? Back where he started. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Solomon speaking to us, Christians of Sydney, listen up. I ransacked the whole universe. I looked everywhere. I tried everything that could give me some meaning, some satisfaction, some happiness without God. And I found nothing. Why? It's because there is nothing. I tried it all. It was empty. It's futile without God. Life without God is the greatest of vanities. That was the result of his experiments. My friend, understand that a life without God will always be futile. Now, sure that the pleasures of this world will bring some initial joy and satisfaction. That's true. Right now, perhaps you're thinking, hey, I'm having the time of my life. I don't know what you're talking about. You know, ultimately, it'll be like drinking salt water. Sure, it may quench that initial thirst, but guess what happens? It makes you thirstier. Life without Jesus will always be empty. That was the outcome of Solomon's experiments. Life without Jesus is empty. But his experiment doesn't conclude with chapter 12 and verse 8. But rather, this book finishes with the solution. We will find what we crave only with God. Notice verses 13 and 14 of chapter 12. Verse 13 commences, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. In other words, th this experiment has recognized the problem. But here is the solution. Okay, Solomon says, I've turned the world upside down and inside out, looking for the secret key to unlock the lock to joy, happiness, meaning, satisfaction. I've tried everything to quench that thirst we all experience, and there's only one thing that works. This is the key to the lock. What is it? Fear God and keep his commandments. Or as the hymn writer puts it, trust and obey. 
That, that, that's the key to the lock. But what does it mean? Okay, fear God. What does that mean? Well, fear God is common in the wisdom literature. Okay, we see it in the book of Proverbs. Okay, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So fearing God is the regulating principle of one's life. Now, when you and I think of fear, usually what comes to mind is that someone is scared. So, so we picture someone cowering and afraid. Okay, I'm filled with fear whenever I see a snake. Okay, it petrifies me. I'm not sure if you saw yesterday, there was a snake at a tennis match in Brisbane. And if I was that player, I was gone. I'd be on a plane, I'd be going home. I wouldn't come back. You know, but that's not the sense of fearing God. Okay, when we talk about fearing God as a Christian, we're not talking about cowering in a corner, cringing in dread. It's not like, oh no, here comes God, I'm in trouble. That, that's not the idea, but rather the idea, it speaks of awe. It speaks of adoration and respect. It's a desire to please the Lord because we love the Lord. Okay, we could define the fear of God as affectionate reverence. And I think a healthy, sorry, a helpful analogy is a healthy parent-child relationship. So when I was a kid, I had a fear for my parents. But this fear was not the fear of my dad beating the living daylights out of me when I messed up. Okay, I've never had that fear. But rather, I wanted to please my parents. I still do. You know, I don't want to disappoint them. I respect my parents. You know, I know with Elizabeth, she looked at me, you know, when Elizabeth does something good, this is what she'll say to me. She goes, Daddy, are you proud of me? That's what she always says. Okay, she wants me to be proud of her. Okay, that's the idea. God is our Father, and we want to please Him because we love Him. Okay, so that, that's the first element of fearing God. But there's also reverence and respect. And this comes as we grasp that God is holy, that God is awesome, that God is righteous, that He's glorious. As we behold that, it so fills us with awe, and it means that we're not trivial or casual when it comes to God. So we have a healthy grasp of his character, which results in respect and honor. So when we think of fearing God, think affectionate reverence. That, that's to be the governing principle of life. So there's fearing God, and then also we are to obey God's commandments. That is key to living a happy and fulfilling life. So be in relationship with God. Okay, that's the fear. That's trusting. And then obey. Do as he says in the Bible. And right now you may be thinking, you've got to be kidding me. Obedience? Doing what someone else says? That sounds enslaving. I want autonomy. I want to do what I want to do. But you know what? That's the lie from the Garden of Eden. Okay, that's what Satan told Adam and Eve, and he's been repeating it ever since. Okay, understand that God's commands in the Bible, okay, please hear this, God's commands in the Bible, that they are not enslaving, and they're not there to make sure that all the fun in life gets sucked away. Okay, God is not some cosmic killjoy, but rather God's law, God's commands are actually a gracious gift. Okay, they're a gracious gift. It's his manual for how to live 
in this world. And think about it, this makes sense. If you buy a product, you are going to pay attention to the instruction manual that has been provided by the designer and the maker because they know how that product works. God has designed and made us. And the Bible, at least in part, the Bible is much more, but the Bible in part is an instruction manual. And God's commands are a gracious gift because he knows what's best for us. He knows what works and what doesn't work. And he tells us to do certain things or not do other things for our good. So God's rules are a gracious gift. So we have fearing God, we have obeying God, and then the final part is found in verse 14. Everything that we do in this world will be judged. Everything's going to be judged. Everything we say, everything we do, everything we don't do, everything we don't say. Every deed, great and small, will be judged. God will inspect the life of everybody. And this gives everything meaning and purpose. It means everything matters because we will give an account. Okay, and here is where Solomon arrived. He had lived life on his own terms. He had pursued all the great pleasures that this world has to offer, but he found no resolution for the restlessness and the emptiness within. It was still there. The only resolution was when he lived life on God's terms. When fearing God, obeying God, and God's judgments were put into the equation, only then could the futility and meaninglessness of life be solved. That is the only solution. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. And the question for us as we look to apply the book of Ecclesiastes is this. Do we believe it? Do we believe the outcome and the solution recorded here in this book? God is teaching us through the memoir of Solomon's life that if we look to build our lives on anything but Jesus, it won't work. Okay, God is warning us that a life without Jesus, it will be empty. Do you believe that? That's the question for each and every one of us. Do we believe what's written? Okay, and understand th this reality of emptiness without Jesus. This is an act of grace from God. Okay, allow me to explain. God imposed a curse on this world in response to human rebellion and wickedness. And one aspect of this curse is futility. It's emptiness. It's a life without God would ultimately fail to bring happiness, satisfaction, and contentment. Okay, so that's all part of God's plan. Why is that an act of grace, as I'm arguing? Because the purpose of this is so that the frustration and the futility would ultimately drive us to him. Okay, this is God's good design. We think, I've tried everything. It's not working. I'm still miserable. Okay, I, I'm experiencing no fulfillment, no satisfaction. What's the answer? It's meant to drive us to God. God wants to expose the meaningless, that the meaninglessness of life without him 
in order to create within us a desire for something better and for that to ultimately push us toward God. Okay, so this is his goodness. This is his grace. And my friend, this morning, you need to understand that life is meaningless. It's pointless. It's futile without God. And the evidence in our society proves this over and over again. We are the most affluent society in history, and yet people are miserable. Okay, the unfortunate reality of suicide is high. Antidepressants and so forth are everywhere. We're miserable, and yet we have everything. Okay, our society proves what Ecclesiastes teaches. And yet so often we think, if only I had this then I'd be happy. Have you ever thought that? You know, if only I had that, that would change everything for me. If only I had more money, more power, more experiences, more pleasures, more sex, marriage, children, possession, success, privilege, new job, promotion. Okay, that's the, the missing puzzle piece to my life. And if I can get that, then I will experience joy and peace and contentment. If only I had that. That's the mentality of society, and it's often the mentality of Christians. And understand, that thinking is actually idolatry. Why? Well, it's replacing God with something that we think is the answer. Okay, instead of going to God, we think, if I have this. And the sad irony is we, we can spend our whole life chasing this, and it doesn't work. No God replacement will ever work. Sure, you may feel, feel momentary joy, meaning purpose and satisfaction, but it will wear off. Okay, those things are just like one cup of water. Sure, it'll quench your thirst for a few hours, but you'll soon be thirsty again. Now, as Augustine said, Thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. We will be restless until we rest in the Lord Jesus Christ is the answer and is the only answer and this applies in two different ways or perhaps here this morning you've never accepted Jesus Christ as your savior you're trying to live your life without him you don't want to admit that there's a God you understand if there's a God there's judgment and you're accountable you don't want that or if there is a God I don't want him in my life please understand if this is you you're destined to live a life of futility. Everything you are striving for, everything that you're working so hard to achieve, why does it even matter? It's not going to last forever. You could lose it all tomorrow. When you die, you can't take it with you. Okay, you will ultimately be left empty, completely unsatisfied. And get this, at death, you will be sentenced to a futile existence for all eternity in the lake of fire. Okay, separated from God, which means eternal futility. My friend, that's torturous. Eternal futility. That's what you will experience if you reject Jesus Christ. You desperately need him as your savior from sin. At the table, we remember that Jesus died on the cross to pay the price for the sin of mankind. 
And he died to save you from all that the curse entails, including the futility of life without God. That's all part of the gospel. So my friend, I exhort you, come to Christ. Come to the only one who can deal with your sin and quench your thirst for meaning and purpose. Don't put it off. Come to him as savior today. And then it also speaks to, to those of us uh, who are Christians. What are we living for? What, what are we pursuing? So often, even as Christians, we end up chasing contentment, happiness, and fulfillment in all the wrong places. We, we try and live our lives without God at the center. We become consumed by material possessions just like everyone else around us. We want the bigger or better home more than anything else. We want the holiday home. We're constantly chasing more money. We think the pleasures of life are the answer. More, more entertainment, more experiences, more holidays. Or we pursue wisdom, more education, more degrees, more doctorates. Or, or we think relationships are the answer. If only I had a husband or wife. If God would give me that, everything would be okay. Or if only my life was easier. If God would take the problems out of my life, everything would be fine. And we end up trying to find what only God can provide in anything but God. And that doesn't work. We can end up seeking satisfaction in the created realm rather than the creator. But that is vanity of vanities. So as you consider last year, or still this year, as you consider 2023, what have you been pursuing? Throughout this year, what did you want more than anything else? What were you living for? Is it becoming obvious to you that you were trying to live without God? Trying to find meaning outside of Him? What do you want more than anything else as we head into this new year? Okay, as you think about it, how do you answer this question? If only I had this, okay, whatever the blank is, then everything will be okay. What was the answer? Are you pursuing the vanity of this world? Are you trying to live without Jesus at the center of everything? If you are, please understand it won't work. Okay, it doesn't work. That's what Ecclesiastes teaches us. But here's the thing. Do you remember my, my summary? Okay, not the smart one, but my summary. Life without Jesus is empty, but life with Jesus is awesome. Okay, and what this means, okay, and I want you to understand this. It doesn't mean that you can't have money. It, it doesn't mean that you can't have a nice home or have power or material possessions or a nice car or a good job or a high quality education or nice experiences or good food or excellent entertainment and even a ripped physique. You can have all of that. We don't necessarily have to forsake it. Okay, living in this world as a Christian doesn't mean we can't have fun and enjoy ourselves. I think sometimes we have a distorted view of what it means to be a Christian. Okay, our God is not some angry man up there who wants to make sure we're miserable. He's not like that. He's not a cosmic killjoy. So we don't have to go and sell everything, give it to the poor and live a monastic life. We don't have to go and set up a commune in the middle of New South Wales and have nothing. Praise the Lord. But you know, the problem is this, when these things 
that aren't wrong in and of themselves when they use God's way, it's when they take the place of Jesus. The problem is when we make these things, gifts from God, as the ultimate thing. They become God replacements. That's the issue. But here's the amazing thing. If God is at the center of your life, these things that we're speaking about are good gifts from him. And they are designed to lead us to worship him. And hence, when we get this right, all of these things in this world in their right place, they're actually a tremendous blessing. They're good gifts from God to be enjoyed. So Jesus actually makes our life more joyous, more fun, more fulfilling. And Jesus brings meaning and purpose to absolutely everything. Your work. Perhaps you think, man, I have got the most mundane and boring job in the whole world. You know what? With Jesus, there's purpose there. Our learning, our possessions, the pleasures of life. Okay, they all have meaning because they are all meant to point us to God and to adore and worship him. Because he is the gracious and good giver of all of these things. So they're meant to cause us to praise and worship him. And hence, if we get this right... If we seek meaning, satisfaction, purpose, and happiness in Christ, which is the only place it can be found, we will also get so much more out of those things that are used to replace Jesus, because we'll have them in their right place. And that's one of the reasons why it's so wonderful to be a Christian. So will we take heed? To the message of Ecclesiastes. Do you believe it? Because it's just as relevant for people today, if not more relevant. People think to themselves all the time, even Christians, if I could just have more money, more pleasure, more success, or more something, then I could be happy. Remember, Solomon had everything, Solomon tried everything, and it didn't work. And hence, we need to remember whatever you try to build your life on, other than Jesus, it will fail. It, it will result in utter meaninglessness. And hence we need to consider the alternative. Fear God in order to turn a vain, empty life into a meaningful life which will enjoy God's gifts. Life without Jesus, that's empty, but life with Jesus is awesome. That's the message of the Bible. Jesus gives to us eternal life. And understand that's not just after death. But it's quality of life right now. Jesus gives us abundant life in the present, right here, right now. Now that will probably not look like what you expect because we've been so infiltrated by materialism. But although it may look quite different, it will be far better than we anticipated. And this is what we can all possess. But it's only if Jesus is at the center of our life. And with all that said, we come back to where we started. As you assess 2023, and as you look forward to 2024, how do you answer the question? I'd rather have blank than anything. I trust you can say, I'd rather have Jesus than anything. Because that is the only way to live a life that isn't vanity of vanities. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I do thank you and praise you uh, for the book of Ecclesiastes. Lord, I understand we've tried to cover an awful lot in one sermon. 
And yet I, I pray the big idea of the book is very clear to us. And Lord, by your grace, I, I pray that you would help us to believe it, that you know, a, a life lived without Christ is vanity of vanities, but a life lived with Christ is the greatest thing imaginable. So Lord, uh, please help us as we assess 2023 and as we look into 2024 to put this into practice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.